Appreciate you being here. We're wrapping up this series in the book of Philippians that I've called Joyful. The reason I've called it that is because it's a short little book, four chapters long, and some 14 times Paul uses the word joy or rejoice or joyful. It's probably the most joy-centric book in all of Scripture. Uh, and so the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about this little book that Paul wrote it to the church in Philippi with whom he had a relationship. Uh, he had been there. He started a church there in Philippi. He started with, a, with a, basically a women's prayer, prayer group. He went to the church to look in, uh, for God, an open door to start a church, looking for some men and couldn't find any men that were willing to start a church. And so he started with this women's prayer circle meeting down by the river. Uh, and the church grew and, and, and became an, a great little church did incredible work, um, and he had been there, started this church, and then he left, and, and he's, he's writing this letter back to them uh, from Rome in a jail cell. Uh, and it's, it's profound to me that, that he writes from a jail cell in Rome the most joy-centered book in all of, all of the Bible. What's profound about that is, is, is as, as you study the life of Paul, he never got out of this jail cell. This, this, was, this was the jail he was in before he was beheaded. And yet, yet the theme that comes across over and over and over is to rejoice and be joyful in the Lord. It's amazing. Just amazing. And so we, we've, we've, we've been in this, in this book one chapter a week, and we're in chapter four, the last one. Next Sunday, we're going to start, start a new series going through the book of Colossians. If Philippians is the most joy-centric book in the Bible, Colossians is the most Christocentric book in the Bible. Like it's all about Jesus in the book of Colossians. It's, it's a great study. And to kick off this study, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to preach live over at Stone Creek, and Sean, who shared with us two weeks ago, is going to preach live here. The same message, we're doing it together, but you're going to get Sean here and me over there. It's going to be a lot of fun. You know, this will be good for you, it'll be good for him, it'll be good for me, it'll be good for Stone Creek, it'll be good all the way around. And so it's, it, it, but, but we're going to wrap up Philippians today. So if you have a Bible and brought one with you, go to Philippians if you can find it. Go to the middle of your Bible, take a right. If you get to the map, you've gone too far. All the scripture you'll look at is on our app, you can follow along on our app, it's also on the screen. We're going to jump in, in in the first part of chapter 4. Uh, and, and right off the bat, verses 2 and 3. That's what the Bible says. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintich. Some weird names, man. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Here's what's happening. The book of Philippians is the only letter that Paul wrote to a church that he didn't start the letter with his credentials. Every other letter he wrote to God's people in the church, he started with his credentials. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called by, and he lists why he's writing with authority, but he feels the need to start with why he has the authority with which he writes. In every letter except Philippians. He doesn't start with his with his credentials, Jesus jumps right in there. I love you guys. And, and the reason is because he already knew them and they already knew him. So he didn't, ha he didn't have to pull out his resume. He 
said, look, we know each other, so let me just get into this. It's also the only letter that Paul wrote to a church where he wasn't addressing some big sin. In, in, in the others, there was always an issue that he had to address with the church. He was writing because of a certain thing. So, so this church was actually doing pretty well. But it, it had one lingering issue, though, that Paul addressed. He addresses it right here up front. One lingering issue. It seems that, and, and this is so unlike church, it's so unlike church today. But just imagine this happening. It seems as if there, that there were two women in the church who had a disagreement with each other. Isn't that odd? And he calls them out. He said, I'm asking you, and I plead with you, help these gals. Get along. I realize that's such an oddity. But it's important to remember and to know that bickering and division in the church ruins the testimony of the church to our huddle. I talk about the huddle all the time. Eight to 15 people around our lives that we have influence with. Some are Christ followers, some are not. The ones who are not, we're responsible to, to, to kind of flesh out in real time the mercy and grace and life that is the gospel. And, and, when, and when we, when, I, I guarantee you this, When, especially in the church environment, when we're in disagreement with each other, I guarantee you that your huddle knows when you're in disagreement with somebody. I guarantee you they know. Do you know how they know? Because you tell them. Let's not act too spiritual here. Let's, let's not pretend like we don't. When there's something inevitably the reason our huddle knows because we talk about it. I don't know. We don't know what the issue was with these two gals. Probably what happened, one of them planned some get-together and the other one wasn't included. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they're like, well, why didn't they? I, we don't know. Maybe they're playing a game of stickball and one of the moms said something about one of the other kids on first base and the mom overheard and then they started this, you know, they got on camelgram and just started going at it, you know, like, I mean, it was something real serious like that, right? Because that's how it happens, right? And Paul says, I plead, I'm asking you strongly. They, I mean, he, he puts these two, how do they say? He puts these two ladies on blast, right? I mean, calls them right out. He calls them by name. How do we like that? The, the reason is, here's what happened. Here's why, here, here's why he uses their names. Because the issue, no matter how it starts, the issue had become so well known in the church, everybody knew. That one of them came to the first service, the other one came to the second service. <laughs> and because everybody knew, he said, fine, church. You're not dealing with this, so I'm going I'm to call them out and I'm going to call you out. Now, 
But Paul is not ever suggesting, in case you're wondering, he doesn't ever suggest that when you know stuff, you tell everybody stuff. He's not, like, he basically says, you take it as big as it is. And because this thing is festered through the whole church, then the whole church is going to know about it. The whole church got to deal with it. And says, I plead with you, I ask you strongly, to what? He doesn't say just get along. He says to have the same mind and the same attitude that Christ had. That's what he says. And this is not the first time Paul commanded them to have a change of mind. He said this exact thing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He said, end your relationships with one another. Now, now, now look at what he's doing. This is how masterful Paul is. Paul knows that he's going to address these two gals later. He's not going to name them right up, like he's not going to jump into them right up front in the letter. But he knows he's going to address these two gals, right? Two chapters earlier, he says, look, any relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He knows what he, he's setting them up. Because in their minds, as they're reading this, they're going, oh, I wonder if he knows. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, so in chapter 4, this is not the first time he's told this church to, to change your mindset. He, he, he says, look, here's the thing. You talk about joy? Change your mind to be like Jesus' mind. Your relationships with each other? Change your mind to be like Jesus' mind. It, it would be one thing to say, change your mind. But the, he gives us these instructions in chapter 2 of what that looks like. He says, in your relationships with one another, lower yourself and elevate the other person. In your relationships with each other. In your relationships with each other, serve the other person when you have the opportunity to. Have the opportunity to be kind. Do not like serve them when you have opportunity. And in your relationships with each other, keep yourself humble. Yeah, I, 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 I wonder if this issue between these two gals wouldn't have been nipped in the bud had right at the beginning of it, they'd have kept themselves humble. They would have served the other person. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? And so he, he says, he said, in your relationship with her, change your mindset. And then he says, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. See, here, here, here's, here's what's happening. Th think about it like this. Even with someone you disagree with, think about what are the things we can agree on and rejoice over in the Lord. We all know the things we disagree with others on. He says, so rejoice in the Lord. I'm taking him rejoice. Find something in connection with that person that has to do with, and rejoice over that. 
In essence, what he's saying here is look for what you have in common, not in opposition. We all know what we have in opposition with other people, right? He said, look for what you have in common and rejoice in those things in the Lord. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We're in such a unique time in our in our culture, and, and it's more profound than it ever has been before, that we live in, in, in what I call echo chambers, where, where the only thing we hear are the very things that we say, and we don't hear any other voices that say anything different than what we already believe and think. We live in these echo chambers, and we only listen to the voices that we already agree with. Here's, let me prove it to you, especially world of politics. People on the right only listen to Fox News, and people on the left only listen to CNN. Generally speaking, am I right? Echo chambers. And, and, and what has made this even more profoundly difficult are these things. Because this only tells me what I already think. And I live in this echo chamber. And the, the profound tragedy of our culture right now is you can have different echo chambers that are saying differently under the same roof, in the same family, in the same church. And the more we keep ourselves in our own little echo chambers, the less likely we are to find common ground with people we disagree with over things that we can rejoice over. Does that make sense? So if we're going to rejoice with people over with whom we have disagreement, we have to find something worth rejoicing over. And those things are found in the Lord, not in all this other stuff. Now, unless something is clearly defined in Scripture, we can find something with someone even in disagreement that way we can rejoice over in Christ. Unless there's something clearly in Scripture. And so Paul says, look, in your relationship with each other, just humble yourself. Serve them when you have opportunity. Find something worth rejoicing in in the Lord with them. I, I just wonder if these two ladies had one of them just humbled. Okay, that's fine. You're right. That's all right. What can I do for you? Let's agree on this and rejoice in it. If, if the issue wouldn't have gotten so bad, that Paul would have never had to address it. You follow me? At the end of the day, what this does is it protects and cultivates joy. And then if, like, if that part isn't hard, this is just the first couple verses. If that part isn't hard enough, then he says this, verse 5. Let your gentleness be privatized in between you and God. What's he say? <sighs> Let my gentleness be evident. Like there's a lot of things about my life that I, I don't mind making evident. I got a lot of opinions that I don't mind making evident. But gentle? Here's what he's saying. It's, this is in the context of these two women, right? Remember that? 
They're in disagreement. It's spare for them. And his word to them is be gentle with those you disagree with. So part of our problem, my problem, part of our problem is that we've lost the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. We can disagree. We don't have to be disagreeable. Like it, it, and at the end of the day, if you can't be like super gentle, just don't be around them. <laughs> at least you won't be a belligerent. But in light of disagreement and fractured relationships, I wonder what is most evident about us. Paul says, I'll tell you what ought to be evident is your gentleness ought to be evident to everybody. I guess I don't have to wonder, but I'll, I'll, for the sake of saying it, I'll say it. I wonder if that could be said about me. There's a lot of things that are evident about me. It's not always my gentleness. Would you agree? No, don't agree with me, please. <laughs> I mean, I get it. But, but I, I, want, I mean, just the same, same with you. Especially when you're in disagreement with other people. What's most evident? Your gentleness? I, I wonder if that could be said about our church. I don't think it could be said about the American church the past couple years. I think the church in America the past couple years have made a lot of things evident to the culture. Hadn't been gentleness with those we disagree with. Right? I wonder if rather than gentleness, I wonder what our response to people about our politics on our social media. I wonder what it portrays. Paul says it should be gentleness. Now, there's enough here in these first five verses. We could just shut it down and have enough to work on. In there? In there? But, but Paul doesn't end the letter right here. He keeps pushing. So I'm going to push a little bit more. Is that all right? So here, here's, here's what he says next. If it's, as if this isn't hard enough. Like, like, this stuff can't be done by our own self-effort. This whole thing is predicated on someone who is, who is endeavoring to walk in relationship with Christ. Because in ourselves, we can't be gentle. Right? Like, we need some God help. I can't lower myself and elevate you. I need some God help with that. And, and so this next piece is, look at what he says. You know what he says. You just don't realize the address of it. Don't be anxious about anything, right? But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all under sin, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I wonder if these two gals, had, 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 had either one of them just said, God, this is the issue. These are my needs. Thank you that you're God over all this stuff. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And just kind of giving that to God and not stressed over whatever their issue was. Probably that person would have had this incredible peace that come over and there would have never been a fight. When Paul says, do not be anxious. In order to say do not, it means you have the power to do. You understand? Like if I told my friend Phil, Phil, do not turn the light off over there. That would mean he would have the ability to turn it on or turn it off. So when Paul says, do not be anxious, he's, he's, he's telling us we have the, the, 
the choice to choose anxiety or not. He's saying, don't choose it. Now, when he uses this word anxiety, what it really means is troubled. So don't be troubled about stuff is what he's saying. It doesn't mean don't initially be concerned, don't initially have some anxiety. That's not what he's saying don't keep anxiety resident within you. Don't let that live in you. There might be some initial stuff up front, I understand. Don't let it, here, here's what I know. Some people are professional warriors, right? Like, like they, they can hear one thing or feel one thing and then all of a sudden it's just life is spinning out of control. Keeps you up at night, doesn't let you sleep in the morning. Like it just, and Paul's saying, don't, don't live in that place where anxiety is resident within you. How great would it be if we didn't let anxiety reside within us? Right? Well, it's possible because Paul doesn't just say, don't do this. He gives us instructions. So over anything that's troubling you, this are the instructions from Paul. For a joyful, joyful life in Christ, here are the instructions. Pray about that which troubles you. When he uses the word prayer, it just means general communication. Like talk to God more than you talk to other people about it. That's what he's saying. Communicate. Have this ongoing conversation with God throughout the day. It's not just a prayer in the morning that I'm done with. It's all through the day. I have this open communication with God. Sometimes out loud, sometimes in my heart, sometimes in my spirit. I have this ongoing, he said, prayer with a petition. Pet- prayer is the general con- communication. Petition is the specifics of that prayer. So go to God in conversation, and in that conversation, get specific, listing your requests and your needs. Don't let anybody tell you that God is not extraordinarily concerned with the details of your life and your need. Don't, he, he cares about the little things. He cares about the details. To suggest that God doesn't care about the little nitty-gritty details of your life implies that you believe you are too unworthy for God's specific attention. That's called false humility. That you're too insignificant, to believe you're too insignificant for God to care about the specifics to receive his specific attention. Don't, don't live in that false humility world. He loves you enough. He's concerned about you enough to care about the specifics. So in your prayer, be specific with thanksgiving. Give thanks ahead of answers. This is, this is, this is thanksgiving on credit. God, I'm going to thank you ahead of time. Because you've already been where I'm headed. You know the end from the beginning. I believe what the Bible says. You work all things together for the good of those who love you. Called according to your purpose. So however this works out, I know it's going to be good. Somehow. See, here's the thing. If we carry as much anxiety after we've prayed as before we've prayed, we're not really trusting God. Right? Let me say it in a different way. If we carry as much anxiety after we prayed as before we prayed, we're actually calling God a liar. So Paul's instruction is 
before it all gets fixed in your eyes, give thanks. Now, that word anxious can mean troubled, but it can also be interpreted like a real personally in promoting only your interests. And so what Paul says is don't promote only your own interests, but in all your interests, pray, talk to God, give thanks. Like all those hopes and dreams that you have for yourself, all those desires, God, if you only, God, this is my plan, God, this is what I want. All those personal things, this also applies. I have specific hopes and dreams for me, for my family, for my, and so do you. And Paul's instructions in order to be joyful, don't promote only your own interests, Carl. Make sure you're talking to God about all those needs. List them all in detail. Talk to him about them and thank him in advance for what he's already worked out. For me, my future, my family, our church. And the promise that comes with it is that peace will rule in my heart. See, it's real hard to be joyful when I'm not at peace, right? But it's a natural thing when I am at peace. See, when this is our course, peace is the result. That you know that you've been heard by God. You know that he's working in you. You know that he's working for you. And you know that by the fact you have experienced peace. Now, here's what happens. We work through this with our troubles. We work through this with our interests. And we pray and we, we receive this peace like, oh, that's so good. And then immediately, the tidal wave of anxiety hits again, right? And immediately, the worry strikes up again. So what do you do? You go back to prayer with petition and thanksgiving and peace comes. And like, oh, that's where I need to be. And then immediately, what happens? You know where I'm going with this, right? And so this is this, when Paul pray without ceasing, this is what he's talking about. This ongoing throughout the day conversation. Father, these are my needs. They're my desires. This is what's going on. Thank you that you have. Thank you that you are. Thank you that you will. I'm going to choose peace right now. Over and over and over. And what happens, what happens is the secret that Paul discovered. What happens is the secret starts to become revealed in your life. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He said, I've, I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. I, I know what it is to have the electricity shut off. I know what it is to eat a pot of beans for a week. I, I, I know that. And I know what it is to have plenty. I, I've eaten at Ruth Chris Steakhouse. I, I've, like, I, I've been on both sides. That's what Paul's saying. I've learned the what? The secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who's given me the strength to do it. Paul says when, when, when everything we've talked about, when this is our course, the result is this, this contentment. In spite of what's going on, here, here, here's what, it's a it's a real important thing to choose contentment on, on both sides of the equation. Here's what I, when, th- when when everything is coming up, you know what is it, roses or daisies, whatever flower that is, like everything's up and to the right. 
We have the tendency to forget we need God. When everything's going the opposite direction, we have a tendency to blame him. And so this contentment thing is really, really, really important. And what contentment is, is contentment is the ability to say, I'm at peace and I will rejoice either way. To the right or to the left, I'm at peace and I'll rejoice either way. That's the secret. And so, and so let me just explain from, from this little letter the difference between resentment and contentment. Because that's really what's at stake here. If, if you breed resentment in your heart, you will not experience contentment. Does that make sense? If you cultivate contentment in your heart, you will never deal with resentment. So this is really what's at stake here. And so the key to contentment, which is the door, the open door to, to joy, the first thing that Paul says, the key to contentment is to remember to rejoice. That is, he says it in a lot of different places, but in, in, in chapter 4, in, uh, in verse 4 and verse 10, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were because you didn't have to show But so thank you now. I'm happy. I'm going to choose to rejoice. See, here's our problem. We can get so preoccupied in our moment of need or in our fear of, of, of the future that we forget God is sovereign, that we forget God is good, that we forget that God is a God of provision, that we forget that God is merciful, that we forget God is a God of grace. And when I rejoice, I'm reminded of his goodness. And when I rejoice... I'm reminded of his grace. When I rejoice, I'm reminded of his provision. When I rejoice, I remember what he did back then. I'm feel confident of what he's going to do in the future. So I rejoice. And as long as I'm rejoicing, I cannot be resentful. So remember to rejoice and then just freaking refuse to resent. Just refuse to be full of resent. Here's what Paul does in verse 10. I, I, when, when, I, I love kind of understanding what Paul's doing when he's writing this. He's really, really smart. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you just had no opportunity to show it. Paul chose to believe the best in these people. He chose to believe the best of them. He said, you finally renewed your concern for me. That's awesome. I know you're concerned. You just didn't have opportunity to show it. Really? See, in this case, they started helping early on, and then they just dropped him. And they didn't provide any help at all. They should have, but they didn't. But Paul chose to phrase it in such a way I know you wanted to, you just didn't have opportunity to. He just refused to be resentful. Because let's be honest. I don't care what it is. If you want to do it, you'll make the opportunity to do it. Am I right? When we see dirty dishes in the sink, if we really want to clean them out and help out, we'll do it. Not because we don't have opportunity. You understand? If I really want to serve, 
I'll find the opportunity to serve. Not that you don't have opportunity. You'll find a way. And I love the fact that he says, I know you wanted to. You just didn't have opportunity. Wink, wink. I'm just thankful you did now. He just refuses to be resentful. When people let us down, it's our choice. Resentment or contentment. It's, Josh, it's, it's Joseph in Genesis 50, 20. You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Look, I don't know how I got here, but I'm here. And I just know that God is good. And I'm just going to rejoice over his goodness. And we got to ask ourselves, what's our default when people don't show up? What's our default when people don't help? What's our default when people, what's our default when we're, people are idiots? The other thing Paul says is just appreciate all the seasons that we go through in life because some of them are going to be lean and difficult. And if we're resentful about those seasons, we'll live in the land of resentment forever. In essence, what he says here, I rejoice greatly that at last your concern for me has bloomed again because it had dried up. There was a season when it was hard. There was a season when you weren't around. There was a season when it was difficult, but that season was only a season. And the book of Ecclesiastes tells me there is a time for every season under heaven. Paul had made it through the difficult season. He made it through the season when everybody abandoned him. And now that season was gone, but there was an appreciation for his relationship with Christ through that season. He wasn't resentful over it. Do you understand? The truth is some seasons are hard. And they're really scary and really difficult, but they're a season. So the key to contentment that leads to joy is to not allow our minds to stay stuck in a difficult season. I'm going to choose contentment, even in the difficult season. And then Paul finally says, he said, look, if, if you're going to be content and full of joy, you've got to keep some in reserve. Like there's got to be this well in, that there's, there's still something left in you that you're just not going to cash it in and give up. He said, I'm, I'm not saying this because I got this. Like I've learned to be content. I got some left. The difficult season didn't take it all out of me because I lived this life of rejoicing. I've learned a bit. I got, my tank isn't empty. Here's what happened. When we live in the land of resentment, our tank will dry empty right now. What I know about me is that when I allow resentment to take root in my heart, I very quickly run out of energy and run out of passion. Is that true for you? What I know about me is that when I allow resentment to take root in my heart, I am soon convinced that the worst is still to come, not the best. When I allow resentment to take root in my heart, I soon get to the point where I got nothing left in the tank. And Paul says, don't let yourself get there. Contentment means I got something left. I've learned to be content regardless of the season, and I'm not tapping out because I know it's a season. See, this is real important. The attitude that breeds contentment is that I'm going to choose to live from the perspective of provision rather than the perspective of lack. I'm going to see God's hand as a hand of provision, because his name is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. 
I'm going to live with this perspective of provision. See, when that's our attitude, here's the result. You Philippians know, in the early days, nobody helped me but you. In the early days, you started well. And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. When Paul began in ministry, everybody knew of his need. And, and, and there were probably a lot of people who wanted to do something. The Philippians started with him and started doing something. And even in their limited capacity and ability, they still gave. And because of their perspective of generosity that they started with, because of their perspective of provision that they started with, Paul says there's a promise coming to you. And the promise in verse 19 that my God will supply all your needs. So this perspective of provision is profoundly important. Only with the perspective of provision can we live with contentment. And only living in the land of contentment can it lead to joy. See, here's what I know. When we live and when we hoard what we have so that we'll be taken care of at the expense of giving, at the expense of generosity towards the kingdom, we actually will suffer from lack. See, we think we can protect ourselves by hoarding what we have, our money, our time, our energy. I don't have enough, so I need to keep it. When we live in that land, that's a perspective of lack. I don't have enough, so I need to keep it. I need to protect it. I need to protect me, my money, my time. And and when I'm not generous with it towards the kingdom, I will live in the land of lack, though I'm trying to preserve it. My resources always dry up. For so many people, I don't have enough money, so the money I have, I'm going to keep for myself. I can't be generous. When that's a perspective of lack, you'll always live in the land of lack. I hear it all the time in the church. I don't have enough time for serving a ministry and you know, all this time is protected for family or whatever. That's, that's all good, but that's a perspective of lack. That's why I'm so proud of this Care Connection team, man. Like I said, one fellow working out of town five days a week, limited time here. He said, the reason I, I knew I needed to show up because I didn't want to. <laughs> he said, but man, when I'm here, like God multiplies my time and multiplies my joy. Perspective of provision. See, the attitude of I don't have enough, so I'll protect what I have absolutely kills joy. The attitude, I don't have enough, so I'll protect what I have, kills joy. Let me, let me wrap this up with this. When we live with a perspective of provision, we become generous. And people of faith are generous, and they become joyful. That's how this works. It's exactly how this works. If, if, if we had the perspective that I got everything I need and I always will, how generous would you be? Right? <laughs> it's like, I don't want to say right because then I, I don't feel good. 
Like if our perspective was, when a pro- I got all I need and I always will have, would you? How generous would we all be? <laughs> Terry, I think it's a funny right here. But, 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 but when our attitude, like, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to have, how generous we're going to be. Not at all. Right? So this is why Paul could tell him to rejoice, because at the end of the day, they can be joy, they can be content to be generous. Why? Because they know that my God will supply all your needs, not according to what you got, but according to his glorious riches in heaven. So whatever the need, rejoice. Why? So God will supply. Rejoice. Lower, put others ahead of yourself. Why? Because God will supply. Rejoice. Don't be anxious. Why? Okay, listen. I don't even know to keep this open anymore. But listen. You can't say God will supply. You can't. You can't. That's so weak. In church, I gotta say, God will supply. So I won't be anxious because God will supply. <laughs> Listen, we need to get a little bit more expressive. Like that last song that I'll speak the name of Jesus. Some of you want to clap, but you're like, I don't know if I should right now. Like sometimes it's like, yeah, it's a good one right there. You know what? When I was in Boston, there's nothing to do with my message. I was going to tell you this. When I was in Boston, when they were doing the Declaration of Independence and sorting this whole thing out, you know how they would, you know how they would clap in that day? They'd, they would hit stuff. Or they'd do this with their foot. And when they were really so they'd go, huzzah! That would be cool. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Like you hear some good, huzzah! Yeah, yeah. Like, don't, you can't, don't say, God is supplying. Don't be anxious about nothing. Why? Because God will supply. You got to say with a little bit of, of, you know, vim and vigor. You can be generous. Why? Because God will supply. Now, worry about your future. Why? Because there's a little bit better. So we can rejoice in a, in a, with a little or a lot. We can always rejoice. Why? Because God will supply. So here's, here's the thing, okay? So this week, you're going to be driving in your car, and it's, it's the, the anxiety and the worry is going to hit you again like a ton of bricks. Big old tidal wave tsunami. It's going to change. Your palms start sweating. You're going like it'll cause physiological changes in your body. Your bowels will start moving. Your stomach. uh, Seriously, like this happens. And what you're going to do in the middle of that? Like your windows are up because it's hot and the AC's on. Nobody's going to hear you. But in the middle of that, you go, "God, supply!" Like you believe it. 
Nobody's going to hear you. Don't worry about looking. It looked like you're singing some loud song or something. God will supply. <laughs> and sometimes you've got to say it to convince yourself of it. And you say it enough till you're convinced of it. What? That God will supply. So rejoice. Right? God, you're a good God. You've always been a good God. We tend to be knuckleheads. And I thank you that you love us. That even while we're knuckleheads, you sent your son to die for us. That's amazing to me. I thank you that you are the God of supply. That you are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. That you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Ain't nothing to give a couple of your kids some of your cows. Thank you that you're the God of abundance. I thank you that you're not the God who takes from your kids, but you're the God who gives to your kids. I thank you that we know that you are sufficient and will supply. So we can, we can lower ourselves. We got nothing to defend and nobody to impress. We can elevate other people because we got, we got nothing to prove and no one to impress. You've chosen us. What a... Who are we trying to impress? Help us elevate others, lower ourselves. Help us choose contentment, not resentment. Father, I believe there's some, some in the house, some who are listening today, who generally have legitimate, legitimate flat-out needs that are so far beyond their own ability to manage that they have no help if it doesn't come from you. So guys, I just set you up to do some business with Jesus. So here's the thing. If that's you, you got one of those things that you got no hope if, it, if it's apart from God, I'm going to invite you in this moment right now. I, j- I just set the table before God for you. In prayer, that's what this is. With petition, start telling him, Father, specifically, I believe you love me enough to be specifically concerned with my specifics. Here they are. And then you follow that up with thanksgiving. Father, thank you that you've heard me. Thank you that I'm yours and you're mine. Thank you for the answer that you have already provided. Father, help me see your hand and trust your heart when your answer is different than mine. I will rejoice. Father, we will rejoice because we know that you will supply. Your word has said it and God, you said that when you speak, you act and when you promise, you fulfill. That's what your word says. So, Just do what your word says. You've spoken, now act. You've promised, now fulfill. You will supply all our needs according to the glories, riches in heaven. May that be so. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Let's sing.